The talk you're about to listen to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. Hey, good morning, guys. All right. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 42. Excited to be with you one last time before I hit the road. Um, two quick things. One is that the phone number that's going to be up on the screen, if you want to text in questions, is apparently going to be a different phone number this morning. Just be aware of that. And also, as I take off, um, I would love for you guys to feel very free to reach out if you want to ask for resources, interact on a private level over email about anything that I said this weekend that you want to explore, um, just to kind of share some of your own story or prayer requests or whatever that is. And so my email is very easy to remember. It's just my name. It's just nick.nowalk at gmail.com. And, uh, and, and Nowalk is literally like a street sign, N-O-W-A-L-K. Um, so nick.nowalk at gmail.com. Feel free to reach out. I would love to interact with you in whatever way would be helpful. And at the end of this final session, we'll do a little more Q&A, which I'm excited for. So let me, uh, let me pray to open us up, and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for another morning. Um, thank you for this time um, as we finish the retreat, as these students get ready to go back to campus and back into their regular routine of, of classes in this semester. And, uh, and I pray that, that one last time this morning, you would open our eyes, that you would unclog our ears, that you would soften and warm our hearts towards you and towards your word, and, and give us eyes to see, um, ears to hear, hearts that are responsive to your beauty, um, that we see in Jesus and in the gospel, in creation and in nature, in one another as we follow Jesus together. And, and I pray that this would be helpful. And, uh, and as we um, kind of talk about a, a few final skills or spiritual disciplines or practices that we can commit ourselves to and engage in, um, both to respond to, to mental health issues already in our lives, as well as um, to get ready for and to lay a good foundation for the challenges still to come in the future, um, I pray that you would give us wisdom and that you would give us insight and most of all your grace. Um, and so thank you for this community. I pray for them as they head off into the rest of the semester and into the future. And thanks for the opportunity we've had to be together this weekend. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name and we welcome you here, Father. Um, amen. All right, Psalm 42, and we're actually going to read Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together. As we'll see, these are actually psalms that are connected to each other. Um, but by way of intro, before I read that, um, quick recap, and then to kind of just orient into where this is going this morning. Um, first talk, we talked about anxiety, stress, worry, and talked about mindfulness, um, looking at the world as the, the theater of God's glory and provision and kindness and beauty. And, and kind of the central question was, when you look at the world, what do you see? is a question that you should regularly ask yourself, and I think will long-term be very connected to how you experience the world. It's not the only thing that, that determines how you experience the world, but it is central to it. Um, yesterday morning, we talked about depression, sadness, heartbreak, grief, sorrow, and the importance of lamenting. And just in general, if you have not yet begun to work lament into the way you relate to God, you relate to other Christians, and in the way that you respond to your own heartbreaks and sorrows, I encourage you start as soon as you can. Um, the longer you wait in life, the harder it is to bring new habits in. 
And so I encourage you to make lament part of your practice, even if, honestly, even if you feel, in some ways, especially if you feel like this season is kind of a good season, like, yeah, maybe that's for later, um, there are always things to lament. And, and I'll come back to this this morning because I'll make this distinction, but because I didn't say this during the lament talk, let me mention it now, lament is not just for stuff that goes wrong in your life. It's, it's for stuff that goes wrong in the world overall, and, and that means that there are always things to lament. If you are watching the news every day and seeing the travesties, the injustices in the world, and just numb to it, something's wrong. Like, we should have our hearts break over so many things that are wrong in the world, and so there is always reason to lament. And then last night, we talked about the importance of just being fully rooted in the present, being available to what God is doing right here, right now, not just pursuing the, the, the upward mobility script and always trying to climb the ladder, always living in daydreams and fantasies in the future, but really being available to what God is doing here, what our neighbors need, and remaining where we are. And I'm going to give you this morning two last spiritual disciplines, practices, skills, tools for your toolbox, whatever you want to call it. Um, but let me just mention this real quick before I read Psalm 42 and 43. I, I think there really is a sense in which some of you might be saying, man, I already, I already struggle just reading the Bible. I already struggle just spending five minutes in prayer, and you're giving me all this extra stuff to do. And, and so let me reframe these practices. They're not things to do in addition to what you're already doing. They're things to actually just work into the way you pray the way you read the Bible, what you do when you gather together as Christians. And so I didn't tell Tom or any of the staff this, and so sorry, guys, if I'm throwing you under the bus, but, but even like lament, it's something that we should do corporately. Like, like when you're planning out what your worship times are, don't just plan happy songs all the time. Like work some lament songs in. When you pray publicly, put times in where you can lament during your prayer times. Um, when you um, have devotion times, like you've had each of the mornings here at the retreat, one of the things you can do do is actually be intentional to have part of those times be stillness, mindfulness, actually just setting apart, okay, in the next 10 minutes, let's walk around outside and notice three things about the world that I'm not paying attention to, that are good, that are beautiful, and just celebrate those, just rejoice in those. And so these are not so much practices to add to the things you're already doing, but they're things to give focus to the spiritual disciplines you're already doing. Um, and, and I would guess that for most of you, this is certainly true for me, and this is almost always true for every Christian I meet, is it is hard to pray. It is hard to read the Bible. It is hard to be attentive to God and to actually feel engaged. And some of that, not all of that, but some of that is because these practices are too vague and they're too unfocused for us. And so the things I'm offering this weekend really are ways to reorient what you're doing when you're reading the Bible and when you're praying and what we do when we gather together, um, that we need to be more nuanced, we need to be more holistic. And so let me uh, read Psalm 42 and 43, um, and then I'll just make some comments about it, and I'll give you two final practices, spiritual disciplines this morning as we end. We'll do some Q&A. Um, let me start in Psalm 42. You'll see as I read that these two psalms are really connected. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I'm going to stop there for 10 seconds and just say this. Probably not as popular today as when I became a Christian 20 years ago, but we used to, my Christian fellowship used to love to sing the song, the worship song based on this, As a Deer Pants. And one of the things I've noticed over the years is that whenever we rip out this first verse and a half of Psalm 42 and we insert it into a song or we pray it, is we always turn it into a praise song. 
We always turn it into a happy, upbeat song, but you read the rest of these two psalms, this is not a praise psalm. This is a lament psalm. As a deer pants for the water is not expressing joy, it's expressing, I am thirsting to death, O God, because you're not showing up. I am dying of starvation and desire and thirst because you are not filling me. And so one of the things, that doesn't mean you can't sing that song or that that can't be one way that you engage God, but just notice that the rest of this psalm is a depressed person praying. This is somebody who is not joyful. This is somebody who is not finding his heart satisfied in God's presence right now. And I think it's always important to let Scripture recalibrate what we're hearing. And so, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before God? And one thing I want you to notice as I read this is this psalm is filled with laments. That's one of the things he's doing. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? That's a really sad picture. He's saying, I'm not only thirsting, and God is not showing up, and so when, O oh God, shall I appear? But literally the only meal and the only wa- water I have are the tears running down my cheek, and I put them, and I, th- there's my dinner tonight. Like, that's a really sad picture. Like, this is how this person is experiencing God right now. The only provision he has is his own sorrow. The only emotions he feels are his own heartbreak. And there are people around me in my community who are not only not supporting me, but who are actually making it worse by either with good intentions trying to say, oh, you know, just trust God, or even taunting me. But one way or the other, the people around me are not helpful either. And so what does he do? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to in the past go with the crowd, the throng, and I would lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festivals, celebrating together. That used to be my experience of the world. We were in God's presence. We were doing it together. It was joyful. It was celebratory. But now God is no longer in my midst. I am either not surrounded by community at all, or I'm surrounded by people who are taunting me and making it harder for me. And so the first thing he does in verse 5, and we'll see that in the rest of these two psalms, this is the refrain that is repeated three times. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him my salvation in my God. And again, I just want you to notice two things about that. One is that's going to be repeated three times, both in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 together. And two, it's, it's obvious when you notice it, but you have to notice it first, is notice that in verse 5 there, refrain, he's not talking to God. He's talking to himself. He's not asking a question of God. He's asking a question of himself. He's not saying, oh, God, do this. He's saying, oh, me, do this, hoping God. And so self-talk becomes part of this, which is important, which we'll talk about in a second. But notice that in the rest of the psalm, it's also clear that it doesn't work right away. He still feels depressed. He still feels downcast. And so, next line, my soul is still downcast within me, and therefore I remember you, O God, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I have to go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, 
My adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is this God you're trusting in? And so, once again, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 43 picks it up, whether it's literally two seconds later, whether it's two months later or two years later, we don't know, but it's a continuation of the prayer in Psalm 42. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. And so, why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Which is line for line what he said back in Psalm 42, verse 9. Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So send out, O God, your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill where you dwell in the temple and the sanctuary and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Then there'll be joy again, and I will praise you instead of lamenting with the lyre, O God, my God, one final time. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. There is a lot here in these two Psalms, and so I just want to streamline my focus and, and get right to the main points. I want you to notice that the psalmist does three things here, which either we're not very good at or we don't articulate and do our intentionally. And so I want to break these down and give them to you as, as diagnostic tests that you can use on your heart on a regular basis. There's a, a famous psychologist um, who wrote a book, and, and I don't have it on me right here. I brought it this weekend, so I, I wish I was holding it up. Um, but Jonathan Rottenberg wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Depths, The Evolutionary Origins of the Depression Endemic. And one of the things he says, he's not a Christian, but it's a really helpful book. You can even just Google his name and read a lot of articles that he writes for major publications. He's very insightful, and he's speaking out of his own experience. He was paralyzed and his, his life came to a standstill because of depression for four or five years when he was younger. And so he basically redirected his life to do a PhD in depression and, and out of his own experience does this. And he's very, very helpful, very practical. And one of the things he says, which I think is very insightful, very true, is he says, most of us in our culture, and here's his phrase, are mood illiterate. We're mood illiterate. We don't know what we're feeling or why we're feeling it or what to do about it. We are literate when it comes to a lot of stuff in pop culture. We're literate when it comes to politics or when it comes to sports or this, but we tend to be mood illiterate people. We tend to be people who are not very familiar with the emotional aspects of being human. And in the psalm, I want you to notice that this person is incredibly mood literate. He's incredibly mood literate, and this is something we all need to grow on. So, so let me break it down practically. The first thing this person is able to do is he is able to name and identify what he is feeling. That might seem like the most obvious thing in the world, but I'll bet for some of you in this room, you are often not aware of what you're actually feeling, that it is not clear to you. Am I sad right now? Am I, am I angry? Am I depressed? Am I discouraged? My this or this, and, and, and you might have an overall sense of like, oh, I don't like the way I feel right now. It's not good, it's bad, but what exactly am I feeling? And this guy knows I'm downcast, not angry. 
I'm not frustrated. I'm not confused. I am downcast. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. So here's something I encourage you to practice on a regular basis. Are you able to look at your own experience in the moment and say, I have a name for what I'm feeling? It's this and it's not that. And if you're not able to name what you're feeling, you're in a lot of trouble in the long haul. Whenever we can't name things properly, they tend to have power over us. The more we can name things properly, the more we're able to keep them in their proper place. Even just naming the monster under the bed makes the monster a little less scary, a little less intimidating. And so first thing to practice, on a regular basis, are you able to step back and say, I'm joyful right now. I'm nervous right now. I'm angry right now. I'm sad right now. A lot of unhealthy relationship behavior in the world, in friendships and in marriages, I think, and to be honest, guys, we're way more at fault here on average than girls are, although girls can struggle with this too, but it's people who are expressing anger when anger is not actually what they're feeling, but they're actually feeling something else. Or they're expressing withdrawal, but depression is not actually what they feel. What they actually feel is something else. And there's a disconnect between what's going on in the inside and how they're acting out. And a lot of that comes from being mood illiterate, from not being able to not just admit to others and God, but even to yourself, I'm feeling this. And that's something we all need to practice. And so like this psalmist, when you come into the presence of God, can you name what you are feeling and give it a concrete, specific name? It's not good enough to just say, oh, I don't feel good. It's not good enough to just say, oh, I don't like the way I feel right now. You need to be more specific than that. But it's also true that that's not enough. You need to name and identify what you're feeling, but you also need to go a step farther. And so this person doesn't just say, I'm downcast. He also, and here's the second thing, he inquires about why he feels that way. And so he asks himself, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And so once you've named and identified what you're feeling, now go another step and ask yourself, why do I feel this way right now? Why? And one of the things increasingly the best biological and medical and social and psychological research is showing is nine times out of ten your emotions are accurate. Nine times out of ten your emotions are not random. They are not arbitrary. They're flowing out of what's actually going on inside of you in your brain and your heart and your body. And so they usually have reasons underneath them that are logical and that makes sense. Now, Real quick proviso and, and caution and, and, and disclaimer here, those reasons can be almost infinitely complicated. To say that there are reasons under your emotions is not to say that it's like, oh, I feel this way because two minutes ago this happened. Often emotions are way more complicated than that. And sometimes it will be. Last night I didn't sleep very well, and so I'm cranky today. And sometimes it really is that simple. But other times it's, I feel this way today because 16 years ago this started in my life and it's been going on ever since. And sometimes it's in between that. But nonetheless, you need to be able to reconstruct your own narrative in such a way where you understand why you feel the way you do. And if you are in the dark about why you experience the world the way you do, you will be prey for a lot of falsehood and a lot of darkness to continue to get a foothold on you. And so ask yourself on a regular basis, why do I feel this way? And, and just to give you some encouragement and permission, it will take you a long time to grow in this Skill. It will take you a long time to grow in confidence. And in some of this, you don't even have a chance to know right now because age and experience is required. There are things that you cannot understand about yourself right now as a 21-year-old or as a 19-year-old, and it'll take you until you're in your late 20s, your 30s, your 40s, but there are things you can understand about yourself right now. 
if you were a little more intentional and grew in a, a, a real intentionality about being mood literate. And so name what you're feeling, inquire about why you're feeling it, and here's the third one. Um, and this is where we're going to go for the, the two skills I'm going to give you as we end this weekend. Um, but before I give you the third one, well, let me also say this. Everyone in this room is different from other people. And those differences are not to be overcome. Like, like the goal of being an introvert is not to become an extrovert. Um, the goal of somebody who's more angsty and, and kind of, you know, experiences the dark side of life is not to just be, you know, the life of the party or vice versa. We are different because God makes us different. And so part of acknowledging and growing in mood literacy is actually just being okay with who you are and being okay with who you're not. Some people will experience the world in ways that you can't, and you will experience the world in ways that other people can't, and those are not things to be overcome. Those are things to just acknowledge. You're a hand, I'm a foot, he's an eye, this is a, 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 a shin, and God makes us differently in the body of Christ. And trying to be everything all the time is emotional and, and psychological um, suicide. We cannot do that. And so part of this is learning who you are, and, and, and to... And to flesh that out practically, some of you are really good just by nature and through your history of naming what you're feeling. Some of you are terrible at it, and it's really hard. And that's okay. Some of you will always struggle with that first skill more than others, and others of you will just naturally be able to. And I say this, as an introvert and as somebody more angsty, number one, what am I feeling? I always know exactly what I'm feeling right away. There are other people that I look at, and I'm like, you I understand what's going on in you way before you even understand what's going on in you. And that's not, I'm better, I'm smarter, they're worse, that's just we're different. The second one, inquiring why we're feeling it. Some of you have a pretty good grasp on your story and you know, you're connecting the dots all the time. Others of you are just jumping from one moment to the, the next and you don't see the coherence that, that connects your story. The third one, by way of confession, is the one I really struggle with. The third one I'm gonna mention now, I find really, really difficult, which is having named what he feels, Having inquired about why he feels it, well, I used to experience God's presence, now I experience his absence. I used to be surrounded by community, now I'm surrounded by either isolation or taunters and mockers, people who are discouraging me. Those are, those are good reasons to feel downcast. Those are logical reasons to feel depressed, and he knows those are the reasons. Is The third thing he does is he responds and he fights back, and he comes back with a strategy. He doesn't say, well, this is the way I feel, and this is the way I feel it, woe is me, I'm stuck here forever, is he does something about it. And as somebody who's angsty, as somebody who's very introverted, as somebody who tends to feel very intensely, but who's also introspective, those first two skills I gave you, I find somewhat more natural. I, tend to, I find that in general I can do it, but I tend to also feel that I'm stuck with what I feel that I know what I feel and I know why I feel, but I just feel like I'm rudderless and I can't go anywhere but just stay there. And I'm guessing some of you are there too. And so this is where the last two skills come in, which is this person responds. Part of what he does, and I'm not gonna recover it this morning because we did it yesterday morning, but part of what he does is he laments, is he processes his negativity and he brings it before God and he articulates it. That's one of the things he does, but he does two other things that we haven't talked about this weekend. 
And by the way, in terms of this respond category, um, a, a lot of you probably don't know this name anymore. Um, in the mid 20th century, there was a really famous British pastor and theologian during like the post-World War II era who was very influential in, in a lot of circles that, uh, that, that like Tom and I and other staff here have probably grown up in. And his name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book on Psalm 42 and he called it spiritual depression. And if you wanna read it, you can, but to me, the thing that always sticks out to me is this aspect of, of what Martin Lloyd-Jones observed, which is the refrain that runs through these two Psalms, verse five and verse 11 of Psalm 42, and in the last verse of Psalm 43, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my God, that he's talking to himself. He's not talking to God. And Martin Lloyd-Jones has this great line in his book, Spiritual Depression, where he says a lot of your problems in life is that you're listening to yourself too much and you're not talking back to yourself enough. That you're constantly hearing what your emotions are telling you and you're taking it as the word of God and you're taking it as your destiny, and you're taking it as the, the full picture of reality in the universe, and you're not realizing that you get a voice in talking back to these things. You don't have to just lay down and accept this as your experience of the world, and so this person talks back to himself. He responds, and, and how he responds is what we're gonna look at, but I just want you to notice now that what you're feeling right now, even if it has really good, obvious reasons for why you're feeling it, is not your destiny moving forward. So much can be different than how you feel right now. So much can be other. We are not helpless victims of our narratives, of our histories, or of the way we feel right now. That's not to say that it's easy. It's not to say it's quick. But how we respond, I think, is even more important than being able to name it correctly and being able to understand where it comes from. Being able to respond is ultimately the most important one. And so there are two things along with lament processing it in the presence that this person does, and here's where we're going to end the weekend, and then we'll do some Q&A, is he does two things. One, he remembers the past, and two, he imagines the future. And these are the last two skills that I want you to bring into your repertoire as Christians. On a regular basis, you need to spend time remembering the past and on a regular basis, you need to spend time imagining the future. Um, let me start with this as we wrap up these, these two final skills. One of the, the renowned novelists of the 20th century was Thomas Pynchon. He's actually still alive. He's one of those guys who's a recluse. We don't even really know what he looks like or where he is. But he wrote a really famous novel named Gravity's Rainbow, which maybe some of you have heard of, maybe a few of you have read. It's often considered one of the great postmodern novels. And in this novel, he, he coins a phrase which I love, and he says that this is a peculiar affliction of modern people, and this is the phrase, that we don't have temporal bandwidth. We don't have temporal bandwidth as modern people. And what he means by that is that for modern people, everything is now. Everything is here. And you might think, oh, isn't that what you told us last night? Every no, what I told you last night is that you should primarily be available right now, but your bandwidth should include a lot more than right here and right now. And for most modern people, the horizons of our consciousness every day are kind of like five minutes before now or five days before now in five days from now or five minutes from now, and we live in a really small space of time as modern people. We don't think a whole lot about death. We don't think a whole lot about what will happen in the world in the generations and centuries to come after I'm dead. We don't think very much, except in abstract ways, about all the things that were happening in the universe before I was born. 
And even in our own lives, we tend to just shrink it down to a very short span of time. We don't spend much time reflecting on our childhood. We don't spend much time reflecting on what's going on in the world outside of our own experience of it. And so Thomas Pynchon says this, temporal bandwidth is the width of your present, your now. The more you dwell in the past and the future, the thicker your bandwidth is and the more solid your persona will be. But the narrower your sense of now is, the more tenuous and fragile you are. If all you have is right now, five minutes before and five minutes now, you are in an incredibly vulnerable position. And here's something just super logical. As soon as you step back, you notice it, which is where most of us live emotionally is 0.0000001% of reality, which means you're looking at almost nothing when you're making judgments about what the world is like and about whether you should be joyful or hopeful or cynical or depressed. And what we need to do is look at more of reality, both temporally as well as spatially. And, and there's a sense in which, by the way, if you want to keep this even more simple, you could say that remembering the past and imagining the future are not two additional skills, but they're expanding what mindfulness actually is. Mindfulness, we usually think about right now, I want to know what's going on in the universe. Remembering the past is extending mindfulness to the past. And imagining the future is extending it to the future and actually taking that into account in how you respond to reality. Because the past and the future are just as much part of reality as the present is. T.S. Eliot, who's a famous poet, also a Christian, says this, and I think this is a uniquely Christian perspective. He, he depicts our lives as we're on a voyage, we're on a journey. And we're going somewhere, we've come from somewhere, but we're on the boat right now and we're on a journey, we're on a, a, a kind of a, a pilgrimage, and he says this, fare forward, you who think you are voyaging, because you are not those who saw the harbor receding in the past, and you are not those who will disembark on the ship in the future. Here, between the hither and the farther shore, while time is withdrawn, consider the future and the past with an equal mind. There are people who came before us there are people who, can't, who will come after us. There's a lot that happened in the universe before we came on the scene, and there is a lot that is coming after us. And as Christians, that not only shouldn't make us scary, scared, that should actually fill us with joy because we know that God rules over the past and the future as much as now. And learning to take that into account is incredibly helpful. Shakespeare actually says in a famous scene in Hamlet, when, he's, when Hamlet is basically asking the question, what's, what's unique about human beings that sets us apart from the animals? Here's how Shakespeare answers, and I think this is a very biblical answer. What is, Hamlet asks, what is a human being? If his chief good in the market of his time be just to sleep and feed, just live off your instinct in the moment, just be focused on right here, right now, what, what sets us apart if that's all we are? And he says, if that's all we are, being right here, right now, satisfying our desires every time they crop up and pop up, then we're animals and nothing more. But surely he, God, that made us with such large discourse, and then here's what that means, looking before and after gave us not that capability of looking before and after in godlike reason to fust in us unused. What Shakespeare is saying is that what sets us apart is that we can remember the past and we can look at the future. We can look before and we can look ahead and we don't just have to be right here and only look at the data that's right in front of us. Animals, if you've ever had a dog, if you've ever had an animal, animals are entirely focused on what is before them and nothing else. 
Human beings can remember the past and they can imagine the future. And one of the things I'll bet you've all noticed is that we all implicitly know that remembering the past and imagining the future is incredibly important. You have all grown up in a culture where one of the most obvious political fights is which history books do we let our kids use in elementary school? Because how we narrate history is not an abstract thing. How we remember the past is not an inconsequential thing. Who tells the story of the past is ultimately the one who shapes how people experience the present. And who casts visions for the future, whether it's Jeff Bezos of Amazon talking about like, oh, we're going to be floating around in outer space in the future. Like, like there's a generation growing up kind of thinking that we're going to burn through our resources. The elite are going to go to space. And that's just kind of the future. And there's a generation growing up saying, oh, yeah, I guess that's what the future is. And as Christians, we have an understanding of the future that's very different from that, and that actually matters. Nicholas Wolderstorff in Lament for a Son says, remembering is one of the profoundest features of the Christian and Jewish way of being in the world and being in history. Remember, do not forget, do this as a remembrance of me, all biblical phrases. We are to hold the past in remembrance and not let it slide away into amnesia. For in history we find God. We must learn to resist amnesia, to renounce oblivion. To be human is to remember and to carry the past along into the present. Even more, to be human is to look ahead, to expect, to envision. And so to be a human being, Wolderstorff says, is to expect while you remember, to plan while you recollect. And if you're skipping those two things and you're always just here right now and trying to get what your heart wants, you are setting yourself up to not experience the flourishing that God has designed for you as a human being. And so let me make just a few remarks about remembering, imagining. We'll jump into Q&A. The first thing is this. Um, when you remember the past, I encourage you to go two specific directions. And the guy here does it, and you see it throughout the Psalms, which is I encourage you to look for what I'm going to call micro-memories and macro-memories. And what I mean by that is micro-memories are things that happened to you in the past. Macro-memories are things that happened in the past that God has done, but that you didn't experience, that you didn't participate in. So macro-memory is actually stepping back and remembering the fact that at one point nothing existed and God created the universe out of nothing. That happened once upon a time. That actually happened, remembering that. Remembering that once the people of God were slaves in Egypt, and God brought them out with his mighty right hand, and he destroyed their enemies, and he brought them into the promised land, and he set them free. And remembering that, it's remembering that once upon a time, God took on flesh and became a human being, even though he was equal with God in the form of God. He didn't use that for his own advantage, but he gave it up for us, and he not only became a human being, but became a slave and became obedient to the point of death for us. And once upon a time after that, God raised him from the dead and made him Lord over all and remembering the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Remembering, this is one of the things, not the, the point this morning, but one of the reasons you should get to know church history is because it's the arena of God acting. It's your family tree. It's, it's the history of, of what God has been doing in the world. And we need to remember all these things on a macro level, but... And this is probably not most of your dangers, but if all you remember is the macro stuff, that's not enough. Because it begs the question, what does that have to do with me? I haven't experienced that. You need to also be able to identify the moments in your history that are good, 
that God has been gracious, that you've experienced beauty. And everybody in this room has a very different story, but you all have moments when you've experienced that. You either just didn't notice along the way, or more likely you've forgotten because the demands of now have crowded it out. And so I encourage you, it might be keeping a journal, it might be working it into your prayer life every day, but you need to, especially when life gets really crappy in the here and now, you need to have micro-memories and macro-memories that you bring before your eyes and say, oh yeah, this is not what the, the full story is, what I'm experiencing right now, and to actually say there is more to reality than what I see and experience today, and to hold that up. And I've been giving you a lot of questions this weekend for each of the disciplines, so let me give you one for this. Um, when you remember the past, what do you remember? When you look into the past, what do you see? And let me give you a couple of things for criteria. If what you see is primarily your failure, you do not see the past rightly. Because your failure is in the past. Mine is too. But that's about 0.000001% of the past. And it's also been overcome by Jesus, and it will be overcome. If what you see primarily is the injustice of other people hurting you, you remember the past wrongly. Not because that's not true, but because that's mainly not true. That's not primarily what the past has been. If you look into the past and you see confusion and incoherence and chaos and absurdity, you do not remember the past rightly. Above all else, if Christianity is true, if the gospel is, is valid, which I think it is, and we're banking our lives on that, when you look at the past, what you should see above all else is that it has been the arena of God's faithfulness. That is the main thing that is true of history. It has been the arena of God being faithful to us even though we have turned away from him so many times. Do you see that when you look into the past? If you don't, your emotions are responding to falsehood. If you don't, your emotions are responding to fiction. If you don't, you are living in a fairyland and in mythology because the truth is that creation and history are the arena of God's faithfulness. Do you see that? Can you remember that? If you don't, you will be swept up by the storms of life much more easily than someone who is more rooted in the past. So remember the past. And so this guy pulls up memories of going to worship God in the past, times when nature and creation were loud and alive with beauty. He pulls those memories up, and this is something we should do on a regular basis. We should remember the past, micro and macro. But we should also expect, imagine, hope for the future. And I would bet that for most of us, this is maybe the harder one, because either the future is so uncertain in your own life, as culture changes so quickly, what's the economy going to be like in five years? Am I going to get married? It's so hard to know what to expect there, but also because the big promises of God. And again, the future is also micro and macro. Expecting and hoping for things in your life over the next 40 years, you absolutely should. And you should hope for those things and expect those things and imagine those things ahead of time. But you should also expect and imagine even more the macro stuff. Christ coming again, being raised from the dead, tears being wiped away, sin and suffering being banished from creation, a new world forever and exploring it. We should actually imagine those things, but most Christians don't. And we kind of feel quasi-guilty for not wanting that. I don't have time to get into that. Part of that is just learning to actually spend time thinking and imagining and remembering that it's not, hey, this world passes away and we float off as disembodied souls to heaven, but heaven comes down to earth and we're raised from the dead physically and we're in a physical world forever. We're going to eat and we're going to sleep and we're going to travel and explore and we're going to have things to do in the world to come forever just without all the brokenness and sin and suffering. And do you ever step back and just look forward to that? 
of being able to experience the world without all the groaning that you currently experience, being able to look forward to experiencing the world without all the difficulty and heartbreak, without all the evil, without all the cancer and physical decay and breakdown, is we need to look forward to that. But I also think this is true, to go back to the micro, you can't just live by looking forward to that. You actually need to, and you're supposed to, you are built to look forward to things in the future. It is the most natural thing in the world that when you're a kid, you're looking forward to getting to middle school and you're looking forward to being a teenager, and you're looking forward to being an adult, and we are built that way. We are built to look forward. And so this might seem really strange, especially after a lot of what I've said this weekend, but if you want to get married, you should look forward to that. If you want to live in this place or you want to have your life look a certain way in the future, there are definitely boundaries you can't cross. You can't be idolatrous. You can't be greedy. You can't disconnect from God's mission. But creation is good, and we were created to experience a lot of these things, and you should look forward to them. You should remember and imagine on a regular basis, I'm not stuck here forever. Things are coming that are exciting. Things are coming that are good. Now, real quick, and in Karl Barth, maybe the most famous 20th century theologian, he talks about this, that we all need big hopes and little hopes. And if all you have is little hopes, you're in trouble, but if all you have is big hopes, you're also in trouble. You need big hopes and little hopes, but with this proviso, little hopes are always relative. They flow out of the big hope. The reason we expect the next 40 years to hold beauty is because we know in the long term beauty is coming. But they're also conditional if, if you... If you're unfaithful to other people, your marriage will not be good. If you constantly lie, your friendships will not flourish. They are conditional, but they're also open to correction, which means that God's providence means that there is suffering in a fallen world coming for each of us. And there are a lot of things that everyone in this room, including me, hopes the next 10, 20, 30 years hold, which the next 10, 20, 30 years will not, in fact, hold. But you should still look forward to it. And you should still expect it. And when it doesn't turn out that way, you should lament. When it doesn't turn out that way, you should lament. You should not numb yourself. Say, oh, well, I didn't actually want it. I'm just trusting in God. I'm just leaving it up to God. Like nobody actually experiences the world that way. Keep your heart open. Don't numb it to keep it protected from pain. You should want these things, desire them, expect them. And when they don't happen, you should lament and lean a little more into the big hope. But what you need to do is remember the past and imagine the future. And again, as you read Scripture, just notice in the future, you can barely get through three pages of Scripture as you, as you look for this, you have this paradigm, without noticing that biblical writers are constantly encouraging the people of God to respond to what's going on now by reminding them of what God has done in the past and by raising their eyes to what's coming in the future. This dynamic shows up thousands of times in the Bible. Work this into your Bible reading. Notice it, but also in your prayer time. Step back and on a regular basis. For some of you, it might be every day, others a couple times a week, but actually bring up some memories and give thanks for what's happened in the past. Give thanks for your birth and give thanks for the way God has created you. Give thanks for your family. Give thanks that you live in this time and place where there's good in that and give thanks for the big stuff God has done in history in the, fu- in the past and then look to the future. Dostoevsky, um, who wrote Brothers Karamazov, Crime and Punishment, profound Christian. If I had more time, I would work in even more of him into this talk because he talks about these dynamics a lot. But he says this in his journals and I think this is really, really insightful. And I just leave it as we end as something for you to think about. Our emotions are always, finally, a response to reality and how we see reality. Our emotions are always a response to that, and that's where mental health stuff comes from. And Dostoevsky points this out. Reality, in its entirety, 
is not to be exhausted by what is immediately at hand and available to us because an overwhelming part of this reality is contained in the form of a still latent, unuttered future word that God has not yet spoken. One of the many reasons when I have had students over the years, friends over the years commit suicide, that I find that deeply tragic, when I have wrestled with that in my own life, is they're made in the image of God and they're valuable. They, they leave so many people that love them behind. There's lots of reasons that's tragic, but one of them is this, which is you, you gave a verdict on reality before you had the full picture because things were coming that you couldn't even imagine and you drew the verdict too soon. And, and that's not to say that we're harsh on people who struggle with that, not at all, but it is to say that we need to remember that what we see and experience right now is only a small part of the story. There are things coming in our own individual lives and in the universe overall that are beautiful, that are beyond expectation, that we couldn't guess, and wait for that. Be patient for that. Don't deliver the verdict before it's time. Jean Vanier, um, who has started, and he actually just died this year. He's one of my heroes. He started the La Arc movement. Anybody know what that is? Um, it's, it's a worldwide series of houses and movements where adults with severe mental and physical disabilities live together. And he spent, he spent his entire life devoting himself to some of the outcasts on the fringes of society in every culture of the world. And one of the things he says in a book called Seeing Beyond Depression is he encourages us this, and he says, become friends of time. Become friends of time. Don't let your whole reality be right here, right now. Become friends of time. Remember the past and imagine the future. These are central disciplines and practices for the people of God. Arguably, both the Lord's Supper and baptism point backwards and forward. What we do all the time when we gather is if we're being faithful, if we're being wise, we remember the past, we imagine the future. This is, I'm going to end here um, with just, so what? But let me say this, and, and I never want to come across as crabby or just like, oh, what we're doing today is bad and dumb and what was happening in the past among Christians was good. But I do think that part of what goes wrong here is the way that we worship through song today. And part of what I mean by that is this, almost all of our songs are vague and just describe not only positive emotions only, but just emotions without the reasons for the emotions. When you look at worship songs that Christians historically have sung, they've been rooted in events in the past. We're singing because God did this. We're worshiping because God did that in the past. And we're hopeful because this is coming in the future. Our songs very rarely actually make much reference to the past or the future. And therefore, they often lead to this disconnect of I'm singing songs that I'm not actually experiencing in my own life. And so I just encourage you, whether you're a worship leader or whether it's just as you think about how do we worship in community, find songs we can sing that help us to remember the past, that help us to imagine the future, and that don't just say, isn't it amazing to be alive right now? Thank you, Jesus, for how joyful I feel. Because that's not super helpful. That's not super helpful. That's not how the world actually works. And so, um, as I end with just uh, some so what's, one of the questions that this talk this morning raises is, yeah, but last night and a couple of times this weekend, Nick, you've been saying, like, be fully here right now. So how does that work? And, and let me say two things. One is between past, present, and future, right here, right now is the most important one. The past is subservient to the present. 
The future is subservient to the present. One, because it's the only time you have. You're not promised tomorrow, and you cannot repeat the past. Right now, right here, is the time of faithfulness or unbelief. Right here, right now, is the time of reflecting God's image or rebelling against him as idolaters. And right here, right now, is what the past and the future serve. And so remembering the past and imagining the future is not don't be here right now, but it's you can't be right here right now well unless you're remembering the past and imagining the future rightly. And so we do these things for the sake of the present. We do these things for the sake of actually being free to be available to God's purposes and to other people. Because the more you're trying to cram everything into right here, right now, the less available you are to other people and to the mission of God. The more you remember, man, the past has been good. The past has been the arena of God's faithfulness and the future will be even better. That actually releases the pressure for the present to be everything all the time to you. It's actually okay for some desires to not come true in your life. It's actually okay for not to get what you want sometimes. It's actually okay that there are tears right now because this is not the whole story. And so we remember the past and we imagine the future for the sake of the present. And in fact, I know this is super nerdy and it, and it does need to be qualified, but I'm gonna give you a little mathematical formula for your life. Here is your life in a nutshell. How you remember the past plus how you imagine the future equals how you experience the present. That is true for every single one of you. That is true for non-Christians as well. How you remember the past plus how you imagine the future dictates how you experience the present. Which is why if you've got good things you're looking forward to when you get back to campus tomorrow, Friday night hanging out with your friends, looking forward to things coming after graduation, it's a lot easier to be joyful right now. Not because of circumstances right now, but because you're looking forward to that. If you grew up in a family that was just life-giving and really healthy, it's a little easier for you to be rooted in the present and to enjoy it. And if you grew up in a really broken family, you walk through life with baggage in the present. How we remember the past and how we imagine the future shapes the way we experience the present and the present is what finally matters. Charles Williams, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis, um, said this, and I think it's really profound. He says, one of the goals of Christians should be to always fulfill the moment as the moment. Fulfill the moments that you are given as the moment, but to do that, to see the moments for what they are in your life, you need to set them in this larger story of remembering the past and imagining the future. And so as I end um, this weekend, again, feel free to reach out. I'd love to continue the conversation. But more than anything else, I encourage all of you, and, and, and I know there was a lot this weekend. It could feel overwhelming, like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant. Where do I even start? But let me start with this. The most important thing is not let me go home and think about this more, although I do hope you reflect on it. And the point is not, oh, I'm going to give up because that's just too challenging. I could never be there. The, the, the main thing is grab one or two of these skills, disciplines I gave you, and go home later tonight, tomorrow, and start doing them. Start actually practicing them. All disciplines, all practices, they take a while to become comfortable. But guys, I, I just leave you with this vision. A lot of you have, by God's grace, 30, 40, 50 years coming up. In whatever time each of us has coming up, if you become people who regularly remember the past faithfully and imagining the future through the eyes of hope and faith, that is through truth, if you're people who are lamenting on a regular basis in God's presence the hard things you go through, if you're staying awake and attentive to what the universe actually is, mindfulness, if you are staying rooted in the present and making it, 
through times of silence and reflection, just saying, God, whatever else is going on, I'm available to you and what you're doing right here, right now. If you practice those things on a regular basis, you will be a people set apart from the culture around you. You will look profoundly different than your non-Christian friends. And as your friends get older with you and the despair and the discouragement and the depression rises, they will look at you individually and as a community and say, there is something there that's life-giving, that's joyful, that, that's, that's actually reflecting what our life is supposed to be, and they will find the gospel much more compelling, and you will flourish much more. This is not at all a claim that you can avoid heartbreak. What happens to you objectively in the future, has ve- you have very little control over. God does, and he's good, but you have very little control over. But how you process it, respond to it, experience it, we have much more agency over those things by God's grace than we tend to think we, we do. We are not victims of our history. We are not passive recipients of what we feel. We are people who are made in the image of God. You can actually participate in what God is doing in the world. Um, and we're given a spirit, and we're given Jesus to follow, and we're also given each other to do this together. And so I commend these, begin practicing them Don't just stay inside your own head, but also mean it. Let it flow out of the story of the gospel. Don't just do it with nothing going on in your head, with no hopes in your heart, um, and support one another. Do this together. And so let me pray. Father, thank you for this community, and I pray that we would be a people who can remember the past, who can remember that you are our creator, who once spoke into the darkness and brought forth life who even before we were in our mother's womb, you knew us in the days to come and you formed us and knitted us into the incredible beings who are fearfully and wonderfully made, created in your image. You're the God who has regularly turned upside down the oppression and the injustice of sinful human history, who brought his people out of Egypt and set them free and gave them a law and made himself known and gave them the inheritance of the nations. And, And above all else, you are the God who... 2,000 years ago, took on flesh, became a human, lived the life that we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose again to new, everlasting, unbreakable life, and became Lord over all, and poured out your spirit on your people, and called us to be together as a new family uh, across all the dividing lines and barriers of a fallen world, and sent us to the nations with a mission, and it was given us a future hope that is incredible. And so I pray, help us to imagine, to hope for that future, help us to remember the past faithfully, and as we do that and after we do that, that we would come back to the present and remain where we are, be fully here right now, available to your purposes, available to what our neighbors need, available to what you're doing in the world, knowing that we can trust you with the unfulfilled desires that are there that we can trust you with the future, that you will be as faithful in the future as you have already shown yourself to be. And when the present brings dissonance, help us to lament, help us to cry, but to do it in expectation that you hear and that you respond and that you care. And so help us to cast all of our anxieties on you and help us to also be a community who can relate to and respond to the difficulties of others the way that you respond to ours with generosity, with patience, with perseverance, with hope, with gentleness, and above all else with love. And so I do pray in so many ways, I just think that the ultimate picture of mental health is a people who can rejoice with those who rejoice and who can weep with those who weep. 
And so help us to be that kind of community, help us to be that kind of people, and we also pray that that would present a picture, um, an embodied portrait of the beauty of who you are that also resounds to our non-Christian friends outside of the church. Um, And again, I just pray for each friend in this room, help us to grow in these practices and give us encouragement along the way. We love you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Tom. Yeah. I think fire hydrant, that is a really good description. Because this weekend, it has felt like you've taken a box, and you've opened it, and you've unpacked just so many different things. You've made things actually kind of complex, which is reflective of reality, um, which raises questions. Now, how do we put I feel like each talk you gave could have been multiple hours exploring. Um, You seem like a guy who's researched so much, you've left out many things that you know. Uh, So some of the questions are actually related to this. How do we tie some of these concepts together? Some of them that seem kind of separated out. Mm -hmm. Um, So first question, how can we reconcile having emotions that are accurate and then speaking against them in confrontation. Yeah. So how do we, you know, uh, in some ways trust, and then in some ways distrust, how do, we, how do we navigate that? Yeah, that's good. When I say that our emotions are accurate, I mean they're accurate in the sense that they are actually reflecting and bouncing off what you see when you look at the world, but what you see when you look at the world is often not accurate. And so your emotions are accurate in the sense that they reflect how you're looking at the world, how you conceive of it, how you're walking through it, But what's often not accurate is not your emotions per se, but what you're seeing in the world. So if you are primarily feeling depression, um, loneliness, um, a sense of pointlessness and absurdity to your life, anger, frustration, it's not that that's not an accurate response to the way that you actually currently see the world and respond to it, but it's to say that you don't see the world rightly. And so in, in one sense, that's where almost everything I gave you, I think, except for lament, is, is about reorienting the way you see. Mindfulness, remembering the past, imagining the future, how you see. And again, to go back to that great image that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, if your eye is good, everything else will be good. If your eye is bad, everything else will be toxic. Um, your emotions are accurate of what your eye sees. What your eye sees is rarely all that accurate. Okay, yeah. so it's the right perception yeah. of the world. Um, so we had a handful of questions, and you already had anticipated this question coming and addressed it right at the end about how last night, in the moment, in the now, being present, fully available, and then today, this morning, remember, the remember yes, exactly. So you answered that well. I wonder if, I think this could be helpful for us to hear from you, how can we know if we're keeping these in the right places, in the yeah. proper places, what are, what are maybe signs yeah, that we're question. doing this inappropriately or veering off into way too much future-oriented or way too much stuck in the past or maybe too much in that hole of being yeah. present? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on how we can maybe keep those in perspective? Yeah, absolutely. That's such a good question. Um, if I had more time, I would have used this illustration. Does anybody remember Great Expectations by Charles Dickens? And one of the really memorable characters in that story is, I'm going to forget her last name exactly, but it's like Miss Halbersham, something like that. And she's this woman who, at one point in the past, things were going well, and she was looking to the future with expectation, but then her fiancé dumps her and runs off with somebody else, and she spends the rest of her life in pause. She literally never takes off her wedding dress. 
She never leaves the room, and everything becomes stuck. And, and, and that's an extreme example, but it's a great one as a caricature of are you stuck in the past, either in terms of that's when good stuff happened, but now isn't, then, then you're looking at it wrongly. Um, another one would just be your overall emotional response to the past and the future of dread or boredom or anxiety if shame is what primarily comes out of your remembrance of the past, either of what you've done or what people have done to you. And it's not to say that's not part of the past, but it's not the main part of the past. The dread, shame, these negative emotions shouldn't be primary responses we have to our memories of the past and the future. If they are, that's not to say stuff them down, beat yourself up. It's to say that probably I still need to do some lamenting for what's happened in the past. I still need to do some reconciling with other people that's happened in the past. But nonetheless, even in the meantime, um, wrestle even more that your eye would be good to, to notice more about the past. Not less or other, but more about the past than just that. And so the future and the past should be, should be bright objects to our mind's eye. Any dread or worry we feel, and you will, should be rooted primarily in the present. What's gonna happen in the next moment? Am I gonna be sufficient for this task? And as you remember the past and imagine the future, it will shore up. But I think it's absolutely normal for us to feel discombobulated by the present, but if we feel discombobulated by the past and the future, that's a sign that something's off. Um, and, and I'll just say this, because you could hear what I said this week in saying this, there is no possible future for any of us where we just walk through life stoically and just always feeling positive things. You're gonna feel worry. You're gonna feel sadness. You're gonna feel this, but it's about context, proportion, how you respond to it, but those things shouldn't be primary in how we remember the past and imagine the future. Those things should be more limited to the present. Um, and so it is a fight to see the past as the arena of God's faithfulness, the future as the fulfillment of our longings and the banishing of evil and injustice. That's primarily what we should see. Um, and then it's also just, yeah, kind of, again, it's, it's a subjective thing, but this is just as much an art as it is a science. It's also, do I remember the past and imagine the future in such a way where it Actually, actually liberates me to be in the present? Or does it constantly drag me away from the present so I can't be available to other people? And again, that, that doesn't mean that you have an easy solution for what to do there. It requires work. But in general, the past and the future should be minor notes compared to the present. They really should. We should primarily be here right now. But if we can't be here right now in healthy ways, probably one of the things we need to do is go back to the past, go back to the future, Oh, movie title right there. That was corny. Um, and actually just revisit a bit um, and actually learn to see it again. Now, again, do want to just say one more time, because we went this other direction this morning, that part of it is also that you don't even see the present rightly. And so we do need mindfulness to actually, as Jesus says, notice the lilies of the field, look at the birds of the heavens. What God does with Job is all mindfulness in the present, not remembering the past or imagining the future. So all of these need to be tools in your toolboxes. Great. Then last question is, um, and you mentioned Dickens, I think. Um, what resources could you share that we might be able to become more mood literate? Um, are there good books, TVs, TV shows, movies that describe um, maybe like Inside Out did a good job of maybe exploring, but have you found any depictions that help us actually not just see it played out, but we could even identify and name things that we couldn't before. Um, any resources you might have for yeah. us? 
Yeah, I, I am going to email you in the next day or so some of these resources, and then you can pass them on. Um, part of this is probably, honestly, my own bias as a, as a literature and journalism major in college, but I, I do nonetheless think that part of, if I had to say four or five things that I think are, are behind why your generation is increasingly struggling with mental health across the board more than previous generations, is the conservative Christian answer is usually, well, our culture is drifting away from God, so of course all this is happening. I actually don't even think that's a top 10 thing. I don't even think that's a top 10 thing. It's how we actually live. Cultures that are not Christian at all in history didn't struggle with mental health issues the way we do today, even in the church. And the reality is, we often don't admit this, but professing Christians report mental health issues as much as non-Christians do. It's not as if we're escaping this, which makes me think this is not about faith in God versus not in the abstract. This is about the way we live our lives on a regular basis in the modern world more than anything else. And one of those is technology. You are not created to be staring at a phone and a screen all day long. You are not meant to encounter reality mediated through tech. And so I would actually say that expanding your imagination by reading novels if you, all you do is Netflix binge, that Netflix binging more is not going to be super helpful for you. You all watch a lot of TV and movies already. Can you watch some better TV and movies? Maybe. But I would say, actually, just like reading novels and empathizing with the characters, trying to look at the world through their eyes, getting in their shoes, um, actually forcing up, because reading a novel forces you to participate, and, and, and watching movies and TV is usually where we just shut down, and we just become passive recipients, and so I actually think the more you can get away from tech, the better. The more you can get away from TV and movies, the better. You're, all, you're already going to do it. I do it too. I'm not saying it's bad, but you don't need more of it. That's not one of the solutions for any of it, but if you don't read novels, if you don't go for hikes in the woods, if you don't just study your friends and ask them questions and get to know them. Read history books, not just biblical history, but just history books. Um, expand your imagination in those directions. But I would say, and this can be true for movies, novels, being in the woods, is when there are moments, and, and I haven't put it this way this weekend, you don't have access to just do something see the world rightly, in two minutes from now, you're weeping or laughing with joy. We don't have immediate access to our emotions that way. And that's the way we're designed. But there are moments when those emotions rise to the surface, and either out of unfamiliarity or fear, we tend to just not cultivate them. When there are those moments when you're actually looking at something with wonder, stay there. When there are those moments when tears are coming unbidden because you're moved by something you read in a novel or see in a movie or you're remembering a memory, stay there. Actually cultivate those things. Stay present and feel that. Actually feel that. One of the things, and part of it is connected to tech, part of it is our busyness, is it's amazing on the one hand that, that we struggle with mental health more than most cultures in the history of the world do, and yet at the same time we feel less than hardly any culture in the history of the world has felt. We spend an incredible percentage of our days numb, just going from one thing to the other. Slow down and feel. Feeling just to feel is not enough, but it is a good thing. Feelings are good. Emotions are good. They're not something to be overcome. Feel. And wherever that unlocks for you, in nature, in a story, watching a movie, talking to a friend, stay there. Don't stuff it down. Don't feel uncomfortable. Don't be afraid. Just stay there and cultivate it. Feels like a call for us to be fully human, fully what, what God wants us to be. Well, Nick, we, we so appreciate you bringing these truths to us. Um, I'd love to pray for you. 
um, and Helen uh, as you guys are getting ready. Um, but we just want to thank you. Please, another round of applause for Nick. Uh, thanks. But let me pray. Lord, we thank you for this weekend. We thank you for your word that has been come, uh, that has come to bear in our lives, for your spirit meeting with us in our hearts. I pray that you would continue to help our eyes be open to reality, the way you see the world, and the truth that emanates from that. Lord, would that impact our hearts? Um, I pray that this wouldn't just leave us in, in the weeks to come, but Lord, that we would um, begin enacting these things to help us see this world, and that our eyes would be um, fixed to see the world uh, correctly. Well, Lord, we pray for Nick um, as he and Helen continue to um, get excited and prepare for their wedding day. Would you bless that? I pray that their marriage would begin um, the way that you would want it to, um, that as you tie these two together, um, Lord, that their marriage would be a picture of your love for the church. And so I, I ask for your spirit's help um, for, the, for the two of them to paint that portrait well um, and that they would draw on your strength to do that. But Lord, we're excited with them, and we just pray your blessing over it. Um, but yeah, thank you for this weekend. Thank you for using Nick. Um, thank you for your truth in our lives. We pray all these things in the glorious um, name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The talk you have just listened to is a presentation of Penn State Crew. Crew is a community where the gospel captures hearts, transforms lives, and launches men and women into a lifelong adventure with Jesus Christ. To find out more about Penn State Crew or to find more talks, music, and videos, check out PennStateCrew.org. That's PennStateCRU.org. This talk is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States license. You are free to copy and distribute this talk to others as long as you do not do it for commercial purposes or alter, transform, or build upon this talk in any way.